Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Uh, we are a part of the Strategist Podcast Network, influencing tomorrow through the stories of today. I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. I, I had the, the the privilege of speaking with Mark uh, Angel, a CEO of Amira Learning, a few weeks ago, and I just thought, you know what, this needs to be something that's recorded because I think that there's a trajectory, there's a life cycle of someone who's been in our space for a number of years. Um, not to be an ageist, Mark. <laughs> I've got the gray hair that I guess gives me the, the, the freedom to say that. Right. But, um, but I think your background and experience is something that we can all learn from. And I think it's, it, it sort of lays out a path and a, potentially a blueprint of what is to come. And so maybe it's the selfishness of me being a parent and knowing what Amira does in classrooms. Uh, but I thought that this would be a really good conversation for us to sort of pick back up on. Great. Let's do it. Let's do it, Mark. All right. So let's jump in. So I want, give me the 10,000 foot view of Amir Learning, but more importantly, I'd like to know for you personally, why Amir Learning now at this stage of your career? Great. Well, let's start with what Amir is. So Amir is the first uh, reading assistant. And what makes Amira special is that it's software that can actually listen to children as they read out loud, children as young as five years old. And as Amira is doing that listening, the software is able to assess mastery and understand the reading skills that that student has and is still acquiring and then use that understanding of mastery to report back to teacher and then to deliver directly one-to-one personalized tutoring. So I started down the Amira path because uh, I had the privilege for a number of years of being the chief technology officer at Renaissance Learning. And Renaissance actually produces the two most widely used reading applications in American schools today. One's a program called Accelerated Reader that helps students build motivation for practice and the other's a, a reading assessment. And what we learned is, is that notwithstanding the fact that those pieces of software were the best we could do at the time, they weren't really solving the enormous problem we have in this country around getting students to fluency by the time they're in third grade. And at the same time, uh, we were seeing these incredible advances that we're all experiencing today around speech recognition and artificial intelligence and the capacity for software to really support uh, decisions and uh, uh, produce uh, rich experiences in ways that it never had before. Uh, so we really felt like the time was now uh, to couple these uh, enormous advances with uh, the huge gap we had in ed tech today. Let's talk about the AI market. So these advancements and that we are now seeing with solutions like Amira, is this a product of, I mean, was education at the forefront in your estimation, I'm, I'm asking you sort of from a market sector perspective, but is this sort of by default that now education is able to sort of take hold of what has been built, but that the original intent really wasn't around education? And it's not a knock on AI at all. It's just, I think, sadly, sometimes education is sort of the last one to receive the meal, right? To say, oh, I, I've got an empty plate here. Can I have a serving? Was that the case here? 
It, it, it kind of is. Uh, uh, in some ways, uh, my personal journey is a marker of this. Uh, when uh, I started building AI, probably predictably to everyone who's listening, uh, my career began on Wall Street. And it began with using really smart technology to support the multi-billion dollar trading world where uh, every decision uh, kind of registers or it's right or wrong in a really hardcore financial way. And every little margin of goodness uh, uh, produces massive economic outcomes. So it was really super compelling uh, to take advantage of smart technology. And also fairly predictably, uh, uh, AI has made a march from uh, Wall Street to other sectors where uh, the risk of uh, uh, doing long-term societal damage is low and the financial rewards are high. So uh, the middle of my career was uh, centered on contact centers and on mobile apps and the ability to put intelligence into the e-commerce and customer support world. Uh, and now, now uh, I think we have established uh, the uh, capacity of this kind of capability to perform at high levels of reliability and validity. And it's appropriate that we're taking into education where the stakes are so high. Uh, I don't think we should be too ashamed uh, that uh, uh, we've been reluctant to use our six-year-olds as guinea pigs. And uh, the 30-year march of AI now makes it uh, pretty, pretty safe to to turn our attention into a world where, in fact, it will do the most good and have the highest impact to everyone. I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned or sort of put a flag in the ground in the 30 years of AI. I, I would imagine this is a bit of a tough question, but I'll ask it. Just sort of where are? What's the state of the union? I mean, sure, we can. You know, we grew up watching the Jetsons, or we we see you know futuristic movies and portrayals of what we think it might be. Yeah. But can we have a, do we have an understanding of sort of where it is and our relation to it, meaning yeah. our comfort level? Yeah. Well, listen, uh, AI has uh, been so uh, twisted in the world of science fiction and the world of Hollywood that sometimes it is hard for people to distinguish the reality that we experience every day uh, from the worries uh, about what it could be or what it might be and in some sort of uh, uh, weird imaginary alternate uh, uh, universe. And I think the starting point for all of us is to recognize that unless you are uh, out in the wilderness uh, uh, living uh, in a, a very different uh, mode, you're touched by AI multiple times a day right now. Um, if you're using Amazon, if you're using Google, if you're going uh, to see your doctor and getting tests done, if you're uh, doing almost any activity uh, that touches on uh, uh, software, uh, the truth is uh, nowadays uh, machine learning and advanced algorithms are behind uh, the scenes doing a lot of the decision making about what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. So uh, we ought to begin with the notion that uh, uh, we're in an AI driven world, uh, but we should also recognize that it's still early days. Um, AI is as profound a change as the whole idea of the internet. Uh, uh, we're you know 20 odd years into the 
uh, world of the internet, and it's still evolving rapidly, uh, we're really only six to eight years into the world where machine learning has uh, taken its place as a predominant part of our lives. So uh, there's going to be a lot more, and we're seeing this. Our cars are going to be uh, kind of uh, uh, machine learning driven uh, environments very soon and are trending in that direction on an annual basis. Uh, and uh, our, our business environment is uh, uh, going to go from being AI influenced to AI dominated in the, in the time ahead. Yeah, I just saw a, a, a news clipping about Amazon and smart refrigerators that will basically know when we need what we need, right? And it's just automatically brought to our, yeah. our homes. Let's take the conversation into schools, Mark. You know, what, classically, software adoption, that, that was always the biggest issue. You had incredible technology, and then you had this sort of gap in time, the relationship of how do we introduce whatever this technology is to a teacher set that may or may not be open to it based on any number of factors, time, past challenges, those sorts of things. Um, how do you think about that? And, and is it actually vital that we experience, to your point, AI in so many ways outside of school that maybe we're developing a better relationship just as individuals, as humans with AI, that now that we're seeing it in our places of work, be it a school or a, a corporate office, we're, we're okay with it, right? We're not coming in with some jolted sense of what we think it might be and the challenge that we think it might present to us. Dead on. Uh, we have seen in the last 18 months, one very positive side effect of this incredibly horrendous period we've been suffering through and that educators have been dealing with. And that is that uh, teachers and uh, school districts have made five to 10 years of progress in becoming technology enabled and technology friendly uh, uh, in the span of a year. And so uh, uh, there's been an enormous accelerant around uh, the school and teacher capacity to absorb technology. But on the flip side, uh, when you're forced to go through this kind of sea change in such a compressed time frame, and you have to make that change under such difficult and negative circumstances, I think we're still needing to determine uh, whether uh, we have gotten through the adoption curve problem. We're not sure yet. Uh, I think the next 18 months will tell. Uh, but we are in a situation where uh, the landscape has been uh, reoriented uh, towards a place where the preparedness for technologies like Amira is incredibly higher than it was just 24 months ago. You're listening to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. If you've got a story we should know about, connect with us through social media. We also want to thank our presenting sponsor, Strategist Group, developing and influencing through change expertise. Now, back to the discussion. Let's talk about your sort of the perch that you're the perspective that you might have, right, as a professional in this space, because we can invent technology that can, you know, pick any sort of advice that we might have. There's some technology that will help us <laughs> with the challenge that we have before us. But then there's technology that I think is fair to say is transformational. It's impactful. And I can't think of 
another, at least demographic, when we think about young kids and impacting their ability to access the world far beyond the classroom that they're currently in, like their future trajectory. Um, how does that get communicated when we think about the technology and sort of the, the nuts and bolts? You know, you hear a lot of entrepreneurs and, and startups talk about the spirit. And if it, if in essence, if something is presented to us and it doesn't really fit the fabric of who we are as a company, then we're not going to take that on. And, and is take me inside Amira, how that either plays out or how you've seen it play out over time, reflective of your career. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic question. I, I do want to step back for a second and kind of remind everybody who's listening about reading. I'm going to guess that almost everyone who's uh, uh, listening is uh, like me, that reading has become such an integral part of who we are uh, that we forget uh, that for many five, six, seven-year-olds, it's a profound struggle to be a good reader, right? We get to this place where our brain becomes a reading machine and fluency is just uh, uh, a fact of our existence. But what we've learned is that reading's an amazingly unnatural act. Uh, unlike verbal skills, which have become uh, foundational to who we are as a species, uh, the capacity to look at some symbols on a printed page, translate those into meaning and uh, absorb and comprehend uh, what's being communicated to us is unbelievably tough for our kind of brains as they uh, normally exist. And so we have to literally rewire the brain to create fluency. And what we now know is that some Students have a really profoundly harder path to that rewiring. Uh, there are disorders like dyslexia that make that uh, process super, super difficult for some kids. And for almost every kid, fluency won't kick in without a big foundation of practice and work. And so as a software company, uh, as technologists, uh, where we start is to try to have a lot of respect for the science and the skills that uh, we're trying to softwareize, right? Uh, uh, sometimes it's incredibly easy to be arrogant about, uh, you know, our capacity to produce something digital and, and to forget uh, that uh, a lot of other disciplines have created massive amounts of science and understanding that we have to translate with high fidelity. So a lot of the way we work at Amira is to understand uh, that we're just conduits of uh, research, science, thinking that's been done by psychometricians, by neuroscientists, by reading scientists, by psychologists, by cognitive psychologists. And our job is to understand their work well enough to pass it on to our students and teachers with, uh, with a lot of integrity. So uh, everything we do tries to meet that litmus test of are we being honest brokers in the transition from academia into classrooms? And Mark, do you think that that's getting baked into technology companies? I'll speak for myself, and I'm sure a number of folks in the audience who have been a part of sprints and meetings with, with those that develop. And I don't profess to have that skill set. In another lifetime, maybe I will. And I'll come work for you, Mark. But I, I don't have that. But I will say that, you know, classically, people will talk about there's a disconnect sometimes with people who are so incredibly talented on the technical development side 
And that that's that little gap that when a company can find that marriage, that yeah. now you've got some magic in what you're providing as a solution. Are we, do you find that we're sort of getting better as an industry in that? I mean, as a parallel, a lot of education companies, you know, light bulb went on years ago and said, you know, we might want to incorporate teachers into our, into our companies because, you know, they can give us some fantastic feedback. And I think we've seen that evolve yep. into where it's not just a nice to have or something that we can at least claim, but we haven't really integrated in. Are we seeing growth and development in the types of people that are building the technology that is really framing our lives? We're seeing development, but we need to be humble about this and realize how long a journey we still have. Uh, there is a lot of inherent arrogance when you have this magical power uh, to turn nothingness into this incredibly engaging, uh, wonderfully uh, entertaining software experiences that we're able to deliver today. And it's just all too easy for the smart folks in Silicon Valley to steamroll uh, the capabilities and skills that uh, uh, other scientists and other uh, professionals can bring to the party. So uh, uh, we talk glibly about ed tech, uh, but it is super hard to combine uh, genuine understanding uh, from an education point of view uh, with the talent and capacity to produce high quality technology. And so uh, uh, I would say based on the journey we've made in other uh, parts of the world in places like Wall Street, in places like the Contact Center, that we're still pretty early days in melding uh, the talents of educators and the talents of technologists to produce the uh, the applications that our students deserve. Well, I, I appreciate the humility in that hot potato of a question. So you were you were brave to take that, Mark. But but you've but but you you know you you've worked in the industry, so I think you've got a really good perspective on that and a, and a thoughtful one. So let's talk about the technology because yeah. am I wrong in thinking that if I have a technology and a software and an approach that allows for listening to what a child is is reading? that it feels like there's application in so many different domains outside of maybe an initial objective of let's get third grade reading proficiency, i.e. Um, ESL, English as a second language, even just language, you know, building on to a second language. Is that, is that fair or foul? Am I getting too far uh, ahead of myself? You're right. Uh, but one of the foundational lessons of smart technology, AI, machine learning, whatever label we want to associate with it, is, is that generalization comes hard, right? We mm. typically have been able to solve problems by being hyper-focused on the specialized nature of the problem and uh, really uh, respecting its kind of uh, uh, boundaries and focusing our energy and solving that problem in a deep way. So that's been our philosophy at uh, Amira. Uh, we see this incredible need and value to help young children become good readers. Uh, but to your point, as we solve that specialized but massively important problem, uh, we are beginning uh, to see options and pathways for generalization. And one that's related to the enumeration you made is, is that the hardest part of what Amira does is not to uh, be able to listen and identify uh, student reading mistakes. That was hard. It took many, many, many years of effort to make that happen. But the hardest thing is the part we're really focused on now, which is when that student makes a mistake, 
what is the right form of help to really accelerate their absorption of the gapped skill that they need to not make that mistake in the future. And what we've discovered is, is that in thinking about what we call the tutoring selection or instructional selection problem, right? How do we select from all kinds of options what Amira needs to do to help that child? We're really forging a kind of theory of one-to-one assistance as people learn. Um, and I think this has been the fascinating part for me. Uh, we're working with some great cognitive psychologists to understand what triggers uh, we can employ to help people build the capacity to acquire a learning skill and, and what uh, a piece of software can do to sort of put the finger on the trigger to cause the brain to uh, uh, really adjust and uh, uh, evolve to be better at that skill. And I think to your point, as we know more about that process and we make Amira better as a tutor, as an instructor, uh, we're going to open up a lot of possibilities for helping people in a lot of different ways. What is what is your perspective on um, on SEL? Because as I hear you speak, Mark, I think to myself, you know, those like an Amira learning, if we were to set a table, right, at a, at a wedding party, who should be sitting at what table? It does feel like the SEL table should have um, those that are providing this kind of pinpoint uh, accuracy on sort of the state of the union with that child relative to their engagement of that curriculum. Is that fair or foul? It's fair. And uh, uh, when we first started down the path of building Amira, uh, we uh, uh, started our partnership with Google, who is one of our investors and one of our research partners. And the incredibly smart person who we worked with there looked at us and, and, and he said, uh, do not underestimate the emotional issues associated with putting an avatar in front of any person, much less a child. And we have been learning uh, every day uh, since uh, he told us that, how truthful and how powerful that observation is. Uh, the whole force and magic of one-to-one -one tutoring is the dialogue that happens between the mentor and the learner. Um, and that dialogue is intensely emotional for the learner. And it involves, you know, a lot of uh, dependence and trust and interaction. And so we've come to believe that, uh, you know, every learning experience is deeply social and emotional. Uh, and we have to understand those elements as we're creating this uh, uh, interaction between the technology and students and teachers. And this is one of the many places where when I say we're early days, we're, we're early days. And uh, uh, we've learned a lot, but uh, uh, much, much is yet to be learned about how to be successful in uh, doing this. Mark, so are you prepared, I guess would be the best way to put it, because it seems to me that once people get the keys to the castle and they see what is sort of, what is out there, what is a possibility with the Amiras out there the, of the world that, you know, we've seen this all over the place, right? The minute that I understand, wow, I can utilize this tool for a different means or a different objective, 
I'm going to do that, right? And so we see that in ed tech as well. So are you bracing yourself for those that will get a hold of Amira and say, you know what, I wonder if we can apply this in this setting, in something that was not sort of the original intent? And how do you think about that? Given your background and someone who's worked in this space for as many years as you have, what are some lessons learned when it comes to applying a technology for a secondary benefit that maybe it wasn't built for? Yeah, well, uh, the first lesson learned is, is that there's a big goal in the educational world today to be evidence-driven, right? If you look at the policy that is uh, dominating uh, the discussion, it starts with the notion that we need to be data-driven, we need to be evidence-driven. And so the federal government and many of the state departments of education start to do the right things. They've introduced certifications and criteria around evidence. And so Amira uh, actually is rated as strong, which is the highest category that there is for ESSA evidence, basically for the demonstration of proof uh, that your technology works or that your program works. But of course, our demonstration of strong evidence uh, is not in the dimension of doing nine other things. It's in the dimension of helping kindergarten through third graders become better readers. So I think if we just start with the idea that we ought to use technology in the same way we use drugs, right? We would not take a drug uh, for things that the FDA has not approved its use for. Uh, and we start with that standard uh, that the uh, user of the technology, whether that's a technology company or a school district, you know, ought to align its programmatic use with the uh, umbrella of evidence that's been established. I think we can protect ourselves from some of this uh, migration of goodness into uh, areas of badness. And you know this. Uh, we saw this at Renaissance. I think every uh, education and ed tech company would say the same. Uh, no technology, no program for supporting students is good if the implementation of that program strays from the high fidelity guidelines that have been laid down. So we, we just need to work together across the community to make sure that evidence first and fidelity of implementation second keeps us on the straight and narrow. Mark, let's close with this. And you had shared this in our discussion off air a couple of weeks ago, just in your, your path as a professional, right? And, and I think I made some comment about, in essence, it, it, maybe the, the tone and tenor of it was, how do I not know of you already, right? Like you've been doing and you've been a part of some really substantial developments in areas that we all now enjoy. And I don't say that as a slight at all, because my experience of you, even through remote digital means here today, is that there's this childlike energy that I think is probably infectious. It's almost if I had to go out on the limb that all those experiences where you might have been behind the scenes to some degree have prepared you to be now in front of the camera for a mere learning. And one, hopefully I haven't offended you, but one, am I, am I accurate in that read? And if that's the case, talk to me about the responsibility that you feel, not professionally, but personally, given that you know the players on the chessboard, you talked earlier about Silicon Valley, you, you know the stakes and how high they are. How do you think about it when you close down at the end of your day on a daily basis, that sense of responsibility given to where you are now, potentially at the front, front of the stage? Uh, let me start with this. Uh, uh, 
we talked about the derivation of my name as, as uh, the program was starting. Uh, it used to be on hell. And my family came to the country from Mexico. Uh, 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 they struggled, uh, as is so often the case, to adapt to uh, a new culture, a new language, a new set of skills. Uh, I was incredibly fortunate in that uh, I had the opportunity uh, very early in life to find reading, to find books. Uh, we moved around a lot and uh, I changed schools a lot, but my one kind of constant companion was D'Artagnan and Three Musketeers and Encyclopedia Brown and the Encyclopedia Brown series. And they were friends that didn't go away no matter where we moved or what uh, the situation in the new school was. Uh, and what I saw as I progressed in my career is that so many kids who come from uh, non-opportunity-oriented backgrounds, they don't find books and they don't find reading early. And it has an incredibly negative impact on their life. And it was scary to realize that for so many children, third grade failure is destiny. They never recover. Uh, and so uh, uh, when I looked at the statistics and we see that eight out of 10 Latina X children are struggling readers in fourth grade. Uh, almost nine out of 10 of black students are struggling readers in fourth grade. Uh, that it made me believe that the one place where I could take the learnings from Wall Street, from contact centers, from Apple, from the work that's been done in, in, in so many uh, other parts of the world and really, really do some good uh, was in education. So I think not just me, but everyone on the Amira team wakes up every day uh, with the idea that we're at a moment where we can make a big difference, but precisely because of that, we have a huge responsibility to be careful and to uh, make sure that we don't give the technology and these incredibly powerful ideas a bad name by being careless or thoughtless about uh, uh, how we're implementing. Well, Mark, I, as we close, I have to say, I appreciate that. I think more as a parent than someone that works in the space, because it's that kind of thought process that I think parents hope those that bring innovation to our children that they come with, right? And there's a, there's a history that there is a, there's a personality uh, and a spirit behind a LinkedIn profile or a company page, these sorts of things. And I think that you've been very eloquent in, in laying that out, not just a mere spirit, but that uh, of you and as a young boy um, uh, in this country with your family and, and the different things that you went through and how that's impacted you today. We wanna to thank Mark Angel, um, CEO of Amira Learning. This has been On Balance with Dr. Rod Berger. This is part of the Strategist Podcast Network, influencing tomorrow through the stories of today. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.